0: And now the Federal Drive with Tom Temmon. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Friday, August 18th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, how to make sure you keep that security clearance you've worked so hard to get. Plus, Veterans Affairs takes to the streets and byways to meet at-risk veterans. Those stories in much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, like many agencies, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board is more aware of its enterprise risks than ever. Whether it's cybersecurity or the hiring and training of its workforce or mitigating potential fraud in your TSP account, the board is scoring and managing these in about a dozen areas in a more structured way these days. For more, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the board's chief risk officer, Thomas Brandt.
1: The risk treatment plans really are so critical because that's the steps the leadership and the agency takes to to get risks down to a level that's more within our risk appetite. Um, And of course, not surprisingly, one of our top risks is cybersecurity. I think that's a challenge that most organizations are faced with. And so through our risk treatment plan, we're able to work with the accountable party, our our chief information officer, our chief information security officer to identify, you know, what are those actions we're going to take in the year ahead? to try to get that risk down to a more acceptable level. But I think as you likely know, and, and, and in the federal community and, and other realms as well, the challenge with cybersecurity is the actions you take today are addressing the cyber risk we have today. But the cyber risk we're going to face three months, six months is probably going to be different. So that's something I think that's always a challenge we're factoring into our approaches is, you know, addressing the risk we know today, but also thinking about how is this risk evolving and what do we need to do to to plan and prepare for those changes in the future. You mentioned
2: this idea of risk appetite, and it's not an uncommon term. What is a risk appetite? How do you define that?
1: TSP is the great great place to talk about risk appetite because all of our participants have an appetite for risk that informs you know where they're putting their investments. Are they you know risk averse and they've got a lot of their money in the G fund, or they maybe you know more open to risk and have a lot more of their portfolio in you know in the C fund. Uh, so. The risk appetite is really just, uh, you know, an understanding of what's your comfort level with risk? How much risk are you willing to take or pursue in different areas? And I think what's so helpful and important about risk appetite is getting an understanding of where do different people within the organization sit with regards to their view on risk appetite. And of course, a lot of that's going to be informed on your role, on your background. But certainly as an agency and a leadership team, we want to have some consistency in our views towards risk appetite. So I think what's really helpful for organizations and leaders to have are those conversations around what's our risk appetite in these specific areas? What's our risk for cyber exposure, which probably is going to be really low? What's our risk appetite for innovation? We're probably going to be more open to taking some risk because that's you know, associated with change. When we think about strategic risk or financial risk, you know, reputational risk, those are all areas where depending on the nature of your organization, you might, you know, you might land at a different point. The other, I think, real key point about those conversations is you can identify where there might be some, you know, variation or misalignment and try to understand what's behind that and and what information or what things can we do to try to get greater alignment in our views towards risk appetite as a leadership team.
2: A lot of agencies are going down this path of understanding the risk. And and this again because I guess enterprise risk management has been around for quite a while, connect the dots between understanding my risk appetite sure. and then how do we treat those?
1: Obviously you need to make choices around which you know what's your response to risk going to be. There's some risk we clearly are going to accept. There's others where we may be uncomfortable with perhaps the The likely consequences of a risk should it manifest. And you'll oftentimes, you know, hear conversations around risk likelihood and risk impact as agencies are scoring their risks. And that's trying to understand, well, what's the likelihood that this risk is going to manifest? And if we go back to the cyber example, we all know all organizations are constantly, you know, being pinged and tested to see what their defenses are. So high likelihood that there's going to be an effort to, you know, to try to compromise organizations. And then, of course, impact you know, if there was a compromise, what's the impact? And you can look at that across any type of risk that the organization is considering. But then you need to step back and, and of course, make trade-offs. And we you, you don't have unlimited resources. So based on the severity of the risk were it to occur, your priorities as an organization, and your mission, what are those risks that you want to have risk treatment plans in place for? And for our organization, Any risk that scores out at a medium, high or higher level results in a risk treatment plan. And my staff will work with an accountable party or the business office in in identifying, you know, what are the actions we're gonna take in the year ahead? What resources do we need? What are the dependencies? What are some of the key risk indicators that, you know, we're gonna be looking at and tracking to help tell us, um, is this risk getting better? You know, is it getting worse? Um, And do we need to pivot and change course in any direction? And of course, for us at the TSP, as you cited, we do have a board of directors. And so I do provide regular updates to our board on the status of our risks and also the progress we're making in our risk treatment plans. And they will, of course, have questions and And dialogue around, you know, how, you know, some of those risk treatment plans and and where we're making progress and then areas where they might have some concerns.
2: I want to shift gears maybe a little bit because you also kind of have a different hat. You also work with a firm, the Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Management. Uh, I always like to say that because there's the other firm that deals with IT. Yes, exactly. Uh, There's two things going on with a firm coming up. You have a, a current survey that's out there to the public at the same time, or at least to the federal workforce workforce public. And then you also have a conference coming up, and then you also have some training that's happening with Treasury. So there's a lot to talk to there. So let me ask you to switch hats for a second and and talk a little bit about Affirm and what's going on with that organization.
1: The nice thing about Affirm is that it's a resource for the federal community, our ERM practitioners, our managers, anybody really that's got a role or wants to know more or learn more about managing risk and addressing risk in the federal sector – can go to a firm for help. Treasury has been hosting a community of practice that's got more than 60 agencies that participate. You know, we have several hundred people that are part of the community of practice. So we've got really good reach and an ability, again, to bring in speakers and share successes and then talk about, you know, things maybe that didn't quite work so well and what were some of the lessons learned. One of the ways in which we we get a sense of how things are going in the federal government is through the annual survey that you mentioned, and that's out right now for federal government employees to take. What's really helpful about that survey is, again, it's probably the only survey that gives us a sense of how ERM is doing across government overall. And then it gives us insights into what are some of the key factors that contribute to or may have an affiliate association with um, greater success or greater maturity on ERM within federal agencies. And Maybe two specific examples that we've gleaned from prior surveys is that, and probably not surprising, but those agencies that, who've made greater progress in implementing ERM usually have a chief risk officer or a director of enterprise risk management who's leading that effort. And then the other piece is that Agencies that have also made greater progress typically have included some sort of performance expectations or commitments in their performance plans for managers and executives around implementing or practicing uh, risk management. So for those organizations that might be asking themselves, you know, we're we're kind of at a plateau or maybe we're struggling to take ERM to the next level, the nice thing about the survey is it can give you some tips about steps you can take to, to grow your program. Once
2: the survey closes, you look at the results, then it gets uh – publicly released at the upcoming Affirm Summit. That's, yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about the summit and what folks can expect there?
1: We've been doing this now, I guess, 15, 16 years. I can't remember now how long we've been doing the annual summit. And the nice thing is we get you know four or 500 people every year that come out participating in a hybrid environment. We bring together, you know, practitioners from the federal level, but also from other governments, state and local. We've had experts from uh, governments in other countries, and then of course we bring in folks from private sector. Maybe breaking news for today is that a firm has confirmed that Danny Werfel, the IRS Commissioner, is going to be one of the keynote speakers, and we're really thrilled and excited that he's going to be able to speak and sort of share. His experience and his insight into how ERM can help organizations.
0: Thomas Brandt is the Chief Risk Officer at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, VA takes to the streets and byways to meet at risk veterans. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Veterans Affairs Department has long had a nationwide network of facilities, so it could be close to those it serves, but now it's taking that a step further with a fleet of mobile medical units on wheels. VA hopes to reach homeless or other veterans who just can't get to a medical center. Here with the details, VA's National Program Manager for Homeless Patient-Aligned Care Teams, Jillian Weber. Dr. Weber, good to have you with us. Good morning. Well, tell us what's going on here. VA is putting out itself on wheels to local communities?
3: That's correct. VA is launching 25 mobile medical units to VA medical centers across the system to provide health care, mental health, women's health, and housing resources to veterans experiencing homelessness and those at risk of homelessness.
0: Well, I remember as a kid, they had bookmobiles, which were little libraries on wheels. Is this going to bring medical care to the homeless, or is it going to bring the homeless back to a medical care facility and then drop them off again?
3: These mobile units will bring medical care directly to veterans in the community setting. They will have access to vaccinations, health assessments, health education, medications, and housing resources directly in the community setting.
0: This sounds like a pretty big vehicle. It's not like a microbus with a couple people in it. It sounds like something they can step up into, and it's like a little environment on wheels?
3: That's correct. There's actually two different sizes that are being deployed. One's a larger 27-foot vehicle that has two exam spaces and also has a bathroom on board. The second vehicle is a little bit smaller at 21 foot, and it has one space when you step in. But both of them have steps up into it and swinging hinge doors for easy access with railings for safety.
0: Let me ask you this. Veterans Affairs generally knows where homeless veterans are. I mean, there are population surveys done. There, are, I think people get out on foot a couple times a year and search out where the homeless veterans are living. What is the logistics of going to those areas and making sure that the people that show up to the van are, in fact, Veterans Affairs Department-worthy individuals?
3: We have been very intentional and thoughtful about the outreach process using these vehicles. So this includes coordinating strongly with our community partners, along with all of our VA homeless program staff and primary care medical staff in terms of reaching those individuals that are high need. So there has been extreme thought and process into this planning stages.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, how do you ID the people when you get there, for example?
3: So VA also coordinates with eligibility. The teams that go on the mobile unit will coordinate with their eligibility office to ensure they're eligible for services.
0: I mean, if you are a veteran, you have usually documentary evidence of that fact, you know, discharge papers or a card, whatever it might be. And do the homeless generally have that? And if they don't, then what happens?
3: So veterans experiencing homelessness or those at risk sometimes have their paperwork and sometimes they don't, right? Just by the nature of their living situation, they may not be carrying appropriate paperwork around with them. Therefore, the homeless program staff, the primary care medical team staff really work with the veteran and they work with the community providers and the VA system as a whole to ensure these individuals are eligible and really be able to provide that care on site at that point in time as well.
0: And are the homeless only in the urban areas, as we commonly see with the tent cities and so forth popping up? or What about the rural, either homeless or rural that are living in conditions such that it's difficult for them to get to a VA or even a community care provider?
3: That's correct. There are homeless individuals in the urban areas, and that's more what you're speaking to what we see, but they are often found in the rural areas as well. That's why we have to be very intentional and strategic about working with our community partners and making sure there's broad awareness about the scheduling of the vehicle and sticking to that schedule when it is set as well.
0: We're speaking with Jillian Weber. She's National Program Manager for Homeless Patient-Aligned Care Teams at the Veterans Health Administration, And who staffs these vans, and how does that all come about to make sure you have the people necessary to deal with what they might encounter when they get to a location?
3: The core staff on the vehicles will be the primary care team that is dedicated to providing service for homeless veterans, or the HPAC team that you mentioned. So this will include a medical provider that could be a a medical doctor, an advanced practice nurse practitioner, or a physician's assistant. It also includes nursing services, social work services, and administrative support. In addition, there could be other disciplines present in terms of pharmacy services, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and then, of course, key collaboration with our homeless program staff to provide that wraparound housing support.
0: What about the security aspects? Because some of the homeless zones are, frankly, dangerous spots.
3: One of the key pieces of this is to ensure safety of veterans and of staff. So that includes ensuring there's no one on the vehicle individually. We're always working teams or partners to ensure there's safety. And staff have also been trained in safety mechanisms to ensure that we all are kept safe. So really want to highlight that. I think that's a key important piece that you mentioned, because we want staff and veterans alike to all be safe.
0: Because sometimes, you know, people maybe have a psychological condition that renders the individual that you're serving someone you got to be careful around. Fair to say?
3: Yes, that's correct. And staff are trained in resources to support those individuals with mental health issues, substance abuse issues, things along those lines.
0: And what are some of the time of day challenges? Because say a homeless person could be in a shelter, you know, overnight, but then they're out during the day. And how do you make sure you get there at the location where you can really find them?
3: The key piece in terms of accessing individuals and they, those veterans being able to access the mobile units is really the key collaboration with our community partners who operate at the emergency shelters or transitional housing programs to provide the awareness to us if there's a new veteran on site that needs access to services, because exactly that, the vehicles may not be functioning seven days a week, 24 hours a day and available in the community setting. Right. So we really have to rely on that key collaboration with our partners.
0: Yeah, you come back to that point a lot. The community care partners are not necessarily suburban, fancy medical clinics, but they could be people serving homeless populations right at the ground level, sounds like.
3: That's correct, yes. In the shelter systems or the transitional housing programs that are working to provide those resources, so food, shelter, clothing, all of those pieces that we really work collaboratively with to ensure the best for the better.
0: And what are some of the measures of success of this program? Just number of people served because you said vaccinations and so forth. But, I mean, what if you identify someone that really needs hospitalization or needs more long-term care than they can get from the van?
3: So the mobile vehicles act as like an adjunct resource for those medical service. And since they're staffed by the primary care medical team and other homeless service resources, they can easily make those referrals back to the VA medical center if they need to go to the emergency department, need to be admitted for various reasons. So that wraparound key piece is available since that staff from VA is staffing the vehicles.
0: And I guess if they were brought to a medical center for more extensive care or longer term care, would it? be fair to say that services that could help them get out of the homeless situation might be more readily available and that it could leave the VHA center to something other than the streets.
3: Ideally, if a veteran is admitted to the hospital, they will be provided those services as inpatient or in the emergency department or whatever aspect they're in the actual hospital system to be able to facilitate, you know, housing and care outside of that stay. However, the vehicles provide that conduit, right, to really help provide that key wraparound piece in terms of so they don't get lost in the system. There is no gap in care or gap in services.
0: And you've got 27 of these. Have you started with it, or when do they start hitting the streets, so to speak?
3: We have 25, actually, that will be deployed over the next six months, and the first one landed in Orlando on August 3rd.
0: Okay, so they're just out there. And is there a plan to say, well, if this works, you probably need more than 25 to cover the whole country?
3: Yes. So right now, of course, we are focusing on the current launch of these 25 mobile medical units. However, there is lots of interest, of course, in future mobile units. And the next step of this phase is to really evaluate this program and the effectiveness of health outcomes. Then, you know really taking those next steps forward into a future interest in planning for more vehicles. And the
0: vehicles that you have now, the 25, are they, so to speak, tethered to a particular medical center, for example, the Orlando Center or Albany or whatever it might be? That's where they return at the end of the workday?
3: That's correct. They are awarded to 25 VA medical centers across the VA system.
0: And how did you pick the 25, by the way?
3: So the opportunity for a mobile medical unit was available to the 55 homeless primary care sites that operate out of the VA medical centers. Of those 55, 25 submitted complete applications and were awarded the mobile medical units.
0: So the plan is you hope that all 55 will have these at some point?
3: At some point, that would be an ultimate goal in the future. Yes.
0: (laughs) All right. Dr. Julian Weber is National Program Manager for Homeless Patient-Aligned Care Teams at the Veterans Health Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federaldrive. Hear The Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, DOD looks to expand a successful cybersecurity program. But first, how do you make sure you keep that security clearance? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. You've heard of the term cancel culture, getting rid of people with unpopular opinions. It's not all that new. That new movie, Oppenheimer, reenacts the revocation of the scientist's security clearance in the 1950s because of his opposition to the hydrogen bomb. What about today? Can unorthodox opinions mean loss of clearance? We get analysis from the managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinke, Dan Meyer. Dan, good to have you with us. Tom, it's great to be back. And let's begin with that very question. If they don't like your opinions in some committee or some project you're working on with government and industry, can you lose security clearance because we don't like the way this guy believes or thinks or talks?
4: Well, the key here is, Tom, that there's a fair amount of nuance required in these situations. The first thing to remember is that the movie Oppenheimer is about the classification and clearance process almost 75 years ago, and things have changed. But as a person becomes more of a celebrity, and Oppenheimer was a celebrity, the rules get distorted, and we're seeing that, and all in spades across the federal government right now with uh, this classified documents issued down in Florida, And the important thing for federal employees to remember is that they really don't want to be celebrities, okay? If you're the average Jane or Joe and you are following the guidelines as they've been issued to you in a document known as SEAD4, then you're going to have a, a fairly neutral process and any distortion will be easy, for instance, for an attorney to figure out. But the last thing anybody should do is to look at what happens to celebrities when they're in these situations because they get treated differently because they're celebrities and that can be good for them or it can be bad for them. In the case of Oppenheimer, he was targeted because he was Jewish and he was targeted because he had left wing views as an academic back in the you know prior to the Manhattan Project. There was also vicious competition on that project and the movie brings this out well oppenheimer and edward teller were in deep competition within that program teller went on to develop the hydrogen bomb oppenheimer was opposed to developing the hydrogen bomb and that got mixed in and the army ended up with egg on its face at the end of that process and the oppenheimer hearings became standard teaching uh, in the national security field for the next half century And the movie does a brilliant job of summarizing all of that. So the important thing is don't look at somebody getting a break because they're a celebrity or somebody getting worse treatment because they're a celebrity. Just focus on the fact that the the rules can get distorted the more prominent the person is.
0: And, of course, vindication, you know, 30 years after you're dead doesn't really do much for a lot of people, I guess. And what if you feel that your clearance has been wrongly revoked? What kind of recourse does the average non-celebrity federal employee or contractor employee actually have?
4: Well, two things on on the observation. First of all, I think it's important for the Army, for one. It would be nice to have the Secretary of the Army issue some sort of statement about Robert Oppenheimer. But also remember that Oppenheimer has descendants and family members who are still living. Um, and so it is important to clear the record when a wrong has been done. Same thing happened with the comedian Lenny Bruce. A good friend of mine, Robert Corn was in the movement to have him pardoned because he was targeted for special treatment because of his comedy routine in the 1960s, even though Lenny Bruce was long dead. That was an important thing to do. For the federal employee, the the key thing to understand is that most of the distortion is worked out of the security process, okay? The EEO concerns we always have, I don't see any of that in the security process. One, I think the uh, security system in general has been very good in diversifying. You see people of all Uh, race, creeds, colors, disabilities uh, in the adjudication rank. And I think that brings some wisdom to their decision-making. But if you do see distortion, if you do see something that's incorrect, you've got a couple of avenues. If there's a procedural failure, you can still go to federal district court. Doesn't happen often because these security cats are really good at what they do, and they know they could get dragged into court if they make a procedural failure. So that's one thing. If you're a contractor in the defense department, you have the ability to petition the director of the defense office and of hearing appeals if there's been some negligence in the handling of your clearance. Some people might have state-based actions against their company if there's been some tortious interference of contract or some defamation in the process. I'm always looking for those cases. They're few and far between, uh, but they're always worth analyzing. And then the court of all last resort, which everybody forgets about, is the United States Congress. You have a representative and two senators. And if you've really been screwed to the wall, then it's time to, you know, remember that you're an American citizen and help get somebody to get you help up on the Hill to sort through this. All of these are very tough processes. What you want to be is the model security citizen, and have this go through in the normal process, because that shows that you are a team player.
0: The government sometimes sounds like Remo and Casino. Why take a chance, you know, (laughs) and shoot the guy? We're speaking with Dan Meyer. He is managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinky. You started to say this doesn't happen very often. How frequently does it happen?
4: Procedural failures, just off the top of my head, I think I'm up at about, I have several hundred cases I'm monitoring on a regular basis. I'm not representing all those people. I have associates. Of those, let's just say of 300 cases, I know that I'm going to have five or six that there's going to be something a little funky going on. I got one right now at an agency that I think could be heading to federal district court because there's something funny going on between management and security. So I would say it's a small fraction, but it's enough to be alert, alert for
0: them. And what should people do to avoid getting caught up in some type of situation that could result in that loss? For example, you know, stay out of jail, <laughs> don't drive drunk or have big gambling debts.
4: Well, the most important thing is to grab a hold on the internet of a copy of a document called seed four s e a d four and I tell all my clients to read that every year, the week of their birthday, not on their birthday, that's kind of dorky, but at least the week of their birthday they should refresh their memory. Don't rely on agency training because most of it stinks. I know I've developed some of it, and I wasn't proud of the program I developed. Uh, It just doesn't work on the slideshow. You need to read that regulation once a year. And then you need to get advice on when to report problems, and you need to realize that reporting to your security officer is in your interest. There's this huge internet chat board sort of uh, narrative out there that says that you shouldn't report to your security officer it's wrong every one of my clients who reports and reports up front does well in the end sometimes they have to adjudicate sometimes they don't but reporting is your best friend that's how you stay abreast of what's going on and then i'm not trying to be self-promotional but if you've invested so much into your security clearance and your federal employee if you're like in your mid-30s and this is your career you need to sock away some money every payday to, to hire an attorney if you get into a situation where you really don't know, because your security officer may not be able to tell you. Because remember, security officers both looking for your violations and advising you on how not to do violations. There's kind of a conflict of interest there. But when you hire an attorney, you own that attorney, right? You paid that attorney. You paid her or him to give you advice, and they're going to give you the advice to get you out of the trouble.
0: And here's a question on the process itself. The apparatus for security clearance has been moving to what they call continuous vetting. That is, they monitor databases, public information sources about people's activities to see if they remain, you know, worthy of clearance. Has that resulted in, can you tell, an increase in the number of revocations or had no effect or maybe reduced them?
4: Yeah, I I talked to a security officer uh, two weeks ago at an intelligence community element who um, uh, it's doubled uh his caseload so i think that's happening throughout the system and what it's going to do it's going to shift it's going to shift the focus of the security community onto debt on the gambling onto criminal violations on onto all the things that are easily trackable with algorithms with artificial intelligence the critical function is how do you get to the more nuanced things guideline b guideline c the espionage stuff that's not going to come up as, as easily in the uh, systems that continuous monitoring relies on. But for right now, there's a massive focus on people with bad debt, drug issues, if there's been uh, something to local uh, law enforcement. And it's now so automated that uh, it's an email that goes from the supercomputer to your security officer. There's no human eyes on that process. just gets spit out right away. So, yes, there's going to be a lot more scrutiny.
0: And the theory on gambling or other types of debts means that the belief is the person could be suspect to bribery. Is that the theory here?
4: Yeah, if you're running high debts, then uh, the WASP from Cuba or the FSB from Russia could come in and say, hey, you got a $50,000 gambling debt. We'll give you 100000 if you give us the secret manual.
0: So don't go to any off-the-market poker games run by Russians.
4: No, oh, that's a bad idea. And dating websites that are in Eastern Europe, not a good idea. Most of them are fronts for foreign intelligence services.
0: Dan Meyer is managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinke. Some great advice. Thanks for joining us.
4: Okay, Tom, anytime.
0: And we'll post this interview at com slash Federal Drive. Don't cancel the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, DOD looks to expand a successful cybersecurity program for vendors. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network, a program called the Defense Industrial Base Vulnerability Disclosure Program confirmed that contractors face the same cyber threats as the Defense Department itself. And that DOD needs to do more to help companies with cybersecurity. For more on the pilot program, Federal News Networks Jason Miller spoke to Melissa Weiss, Director of the Vulnerability Disclosure Program, and Ilona Cohen, Chief Legal and Policy Officer at Hacker One.
5: Well, there were a few things that we really set out to learn. One was when we wanted to identify do we see the same type of vulnerabilities and attack vectors? for the DOD, uh, also within the defense industrial base. And um, in our lessons learned, uh, and you can go to our website at dc3.mil and take a look at uh, the posted out after action reports, we found that, yes, very much the same. The biggest bucket that we always run into is CWE 200, which is kind of a, a broad range, but basically that common weakness enumeration is for information disclosure, and so it could come through as a lot of different things, but it just means that somebody on the outside is getting in and they are getting valuable information, whether that's PII or PHI, um, and again, personally identifiable, uh, identifiable information or personal health information they're able to get that and extract it. So we wanna make sure, as uh, Alana said, that we're getting all of those access points and tightening them down. Now, you may say, well, can't the defense industrial base take care of that themselves? But think about, you know, a lot of these organizations are pretty small. They can be fairly minuscule and maybe they don't have cybersecurity professionals uh, to take care of that for them. So that's really the importance that we saw in the defense industrial-based vulnerability pilot that we were running is how could we help cover those gaps or teach them how to cover their own gaps moving forward. And so that's why it was really important for us uh, to focus within the uh, defense industrial-based sector.
2: That pilot finished up again in 2022. Are you still working with the defense industrial base or is there a pause and you're going to come back to them? Where are we today and where are we going in the future uh, specifically around the working with the Dib?
5: We had such a, a, a good response for it. But I can tell you that uh, one of the chief uh, questions that I would get is, great, you did a nice small pilot, but how do you expand that out to 300,000 or even anything close to that to cover the entire defense industrial base? So we're looking at now, we did another run at how do we Put together that scalability factor. How do we make it not so labor intensive? And those are the things that we're working on right now um, to do some more automation. You know, maybe some artificial intelligence, things of that nature, uh, to bring about that change so that we can expand out that uh, program to a much larger base.
6: Yeah, and from the hacker one perspective, I mean, once again, DC three and the Defense Department is a model for you know reducing cybersecurity risk by engaging with ethical hackers. Mm-hmm. So the defense industrial base pilot was a huge success from our vantage point and we would love to see that expanded not just to frankly defense contractors but to all federal contractors. There are sure there are some very very small contractors who might need some additional support, but there are also a number of contractors who could easily adopt uh, vulnerability disclosure programs for their own systems and try to, um, you know, make sure that, again, they, they help to increase the cybersecurity ecosystem, not just their own systems, but the entire ecosystem.
2: Alana, generally speaking, and this may be a hard question since we're talking about when you look at the defense industrial base or just even the federal contractor industrial base, it's a, it's a pretty big thing. But do you find that you guys at Hacker One, are getting more questions, more interest, more potential RFPs to respond to from a private sector perspective because of the DOD success? Not that you had per se, but the success that DOD had in putting out these programs, like how much difference is it today when it comes to federal contractors using these tools and technologies than it was again, I'll go three, five, seven years ago.
6: I was not at Hacker One in twenty sixteen, but from what I understand, the relationship that uh, existed between Hacker One and the Defense Department in twenty sixteen did help to boost vulnerability disclosure and an acceptance of bug bounty among other companies, and certainly obviously agencies as well. Um and over the years, our relationship, Hacker One's relationship with DOD, has uh, has you know continued to provide comfort and security to companies who might otherwise be resistant to the notion of inviting ethical hackers in to hack their systems. But as I mentioned, as time has evolved, as as the programs have evolved, as you know, the messaging from the White House continues to sort of accept. And encourage this, uh, this form of cybersecurity. We ha- there are fewer and fewer concerns about using this uh, method to you know secure uh, a company's systems. It really is pretty well established method.
2: And I think just having DOD be comfortable with it. Having now, obviously, we know the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has, you know, the, the binding operational directive, the OMB memos and, and, and programs to help with VDPs. I know that that's also plays a big role to kind of sends the right message, if you will, to a lot of, of the vendor community. One of the things that the reason why these vulnerability disclosure programs are more important is because they they help highlight threats that, or or threats or potential threats that maybe haven't been exposed yet or maybe haven't been exposed in in a, in a great deal can either of you talk about how the cyber threat landscape has changed we know there's more ransomware we know it's more more nation state like we know kind of some of those basics but from a vdp bug bounty program how has you all been able to be as close to lockstep as you can as the threats have
7: changed?
5: One of the areas that we really have to look at is certainly there are maybe, I think the, the number is somewhere around 30,000 patches that come out each calendar year. And organizations just do not have enough time or personnel to be able to employ all those patches. So part of what a VDP does is it helps to identify areas within the landscape that are being reported on. And um, one of the areas that we've seen is that organizations tend to like to go for only the critical and the high patches. But we see a trend where they're daisy chaining the, uh, the low level Findings, And so by putting three or four or five of those together, you could get to a critical and high. So there's a gaming of the system that I think you need that continuous view of a a vulnerability disclosure program to really see what's going on in the landscape, not just the big hot buttons that come about each time. You really want to look across as like a single pane of glass and see where those Vulnerabilities are hiding.
6: If you really want the details, um, Hacker One puts out a hacker-powered security report every year, and it compares the types of vulnerabilities by bounty paid. So you can see the evolution of the the you know the number of vulnerabilities. The number one for this uh, year is cross-site scripting. There's improper access control. Um, improper authentication, privilege escalation. So you can see exactly um, what the number one uh, issues are for our customers.
0: Melissa Weiss is the director of the Department of Defense's Vulnerability Disclosure Program. Ilona Cohen is chief legal and policy officer at HackerOne. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. Federal News Network will be hosting a special panel discussion with members of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and other officials on Monday, August 21st at noon in commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Join us in person at EEOC headquarters. Space is limited. Be sure to register at federalnewsnetwork.com. The Army's non-commissioned officers train all other soldiers. And as the service plans for its future force, the brass want more NCOs who can lead in cybersecurity and information technology. A group of command master sergeants talked about the challenges at a recent AFCIA TechNet panel in Augusta, Georgia. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr joins me with more. And so what is the Army doing, I guess? Let's start there to keep the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers, so that they are up to date on some of this technology.
7: Well, Tom, the the NCOs have various different roles. And so they have to keep the the physical technology within their own organizations running and repaired. And those are things soldiers do, but they are ultimately in in charge of those soldiers and, and how that goes. And then they're in charge of the soldiers and their training. CyberCore has a goal of doubling by 2025. I think it's around 3,000 now, or it was last year. They want to be up to about 6,000. And then Signal Corps, which, you know, you probably remember Signal Corps from old World War II movies with the radios. They're a lot more high tech than that now.
0: Yeah, I've been up to Fort and, Ritchie so, in the days of Fort Ritchie, Maryland, in the days before it ceased to be Fort Ritchie. And that was one of the old signal command places. Yep.
7: Right. So now, of course, it's all a lot more technological. And the Army needs to find people who have those skills, ideally in their background, but they also need to train them and bring them up to date on current technology. And so the NCOs have to be one step ahead of everyone else. Here's Command Sergeant Major Jack Nichols from Army Cyber Command.
8: We have to be more technical. We have to understand the space. We have to understand our devices. We have to be able to explain how it operates, where it works. All those things were certain that that a signal soldier should know. Um, but we don't always kind of teach that. To us. And, and, again, it goes back to you know, getting the NCOs trained up at these RSTSs, getting them trained up at the schoolhouse, but, but becoming more proficient in what we do and how we operate and how we perform in the environment.
0: Yeah, it sounds like they need to treat the radios and IT gear the same way they treat M-16s. You've got to be able to take it apart, put it back together really fast, and know the internals to take good care of it. And aside from the technology, Alex, how does all of this affect the training that the junior soldiers are going to get?
7: Well, that's one of the big challenges that the NCOs were talking about in the panel. They have to go out and train their soldiers. And those soldiers do get certifications. They go to schools But when they're within their units, they're depending on the NCOs to be ahead of them and to be able to teach them about the equipment and and the software that they're using. So one of the challenges is that for NCOs, that's not their only job. They're going to rotate into different positions as they go through their career. So someone who's working in a cyber command position might go out and do recruiting for two or three years, or they might be a drill sergeant, and they come back and they're now two or three years behind. So here's Command Sergeant Jerry Dodson with the Army Maneuver Center of Excellence.
8: I I have almost 1,100 infantry drill sergeants on Fort Moore. They come out of ForceCom for two years, sometimes three, if they extend. By the time I send them back out to ForceCom, technology has changed a lot in that period. They they don't know. And so when they show up and we're like, hey, you're now a platoon sergeant, we just got to make sure we have that training right. And so we're taking a look at that. Like, how, how do we keep them up to date. Um, It's a a very fine line on trying to balance all this.
0: Gunnery training means you can lose your Cisco certification while you're doing one thing and not the other. Interesting take here. And so what is the Army doing to keep the NCOs up to date so that when they come back from being a drill sergeant, They can be effective leaders in IT?
7: Well, they're doing a couple of things. They're trying to update their professional military education. There's supposed to be a whole course in data literacy that's coming up, but they won't really have that fully rolled out until 2025. They're updating their certifications, the different career training you can get. And then, one possibility that they're looking at is bringing in adjunct faculty from maybe community colleges or universities to sort of help out with the training and keep everyone up to speed. Here's Command Sergeant Major Ronald Krause from Cyber Corps.
2: And this is challenging, right? Cyber and electromagnetic warfare, uh, constantly changing environment. There's a lot of pressure uh, to keep up with what's going on. Where is our subject matter expertise? Although we reside a few at the schoolhouse, most of it is in operations. Well, if you look at the things that we have to accomplish and to stay on pace, on path of what is going on, uh, with our organizations and our partners in our fields, how do we tap into that expertise?
0: And, Alexandra, is one of the dangers here is that soldiers who get all of this kind of training or the, the uh, NCOs themselves that are doing the training they just get beckoned by industry because of the salaries and opportunities and the army loses them
7: well of course and I think we talk about that a lot with all of the armed services is that you know they train them they get really good and then they're very very attractive to industry right now the the cyber Corps guys are coming up on on six years and so some of them are getting out some of them are staying in but the army does have to do a really good job right now of making staying in and be I mean, an NCO, something that's attractive to their soldiers. Here's Command Sergeant Major Jack Nichols.
8: I mean, there's a whole bunch of battle buddies hanging out out there doing great things in industry. And it's based on a lot of the education and training that they received while they were in the military doing what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our soldiers, you know, we, we look at the first cohort of uh, cyber soldiers, the first six years is just about done. Some of them are staying, some of them are kind of moving on, and that's okay. I just need to continue to build more. And, uh, you know, that's the, what the schoolhouse helps us out quite a bit. But once again, state-of-art facilities support that. Uh, and I look forward to kind of where we're going to or 2030 as uh, several more facilities will be built.
0: And the question in my mind, Alexandra, is does the Army give any thought to the idea of specializing the NCOs so that the ones that are teaching cybersecurity and information technology don't take a stint to do drill sergeant work but stay in the cyber and in the IT area so that they do stay current and let people that be drill sergeants stay drill sergeants.
7: Well, that's a really interesting question. And I hadn't heard that that wasn't part of the panel. What they did talk about, though, is narrowing the number of MOSs, the specialties, and making each of those specialties a little broader. So instead of having 14, you might have two. And that person is trained on a wider variety of technical areas. So they're better able to adapt and teach them.
0: Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore, Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with FederalNewsNetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.